When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for same race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And welcome to the show, made possible by our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Well, today we have the company of someone who has lived a lifetime of high achievement. Superstar jockey Glenn Boss last month called time on a 35-year career in the saddle that featured more than 2,400 winners, 90 of them group ones, and $200 million of prize money for connections. Forever the entertainer, Glenn fought back from a horrific life-threatening crash in Macau to win an incredible three consecutive Melbourne Cups on Maccabi Diva to go with four Cox Plate triumphs and numerous other honours. Bossy, welcome. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. You are, as we sit here right now, about a month into retirement. Does it suit you? Yeah, I'm. I'm actually really enjoying it. It's um, yeah, it's it's great. I get up in the mornings and I actually ask my ask my wife. I said, what, "What's today?" Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she goes, "Yeah, you've retired. <laughs> no structure." Well, you do. You lose that structure. You know, every morning that you know, you know you're up gallop mornings, um, race days. You know, you, you're at the gym. You know, you, you sort of yeah, the structure. And I've heard a lot about this. When people lose structure, they lose their way. Um, you know, especially sports athletes. Um, mm. When you're in that. Um, but for me, I've Really embraced it. Um, and next year, I'm probably going to be more busier than I was when I was riding. So I'm, that's what I'm looking forward to the most. You hear football players say in the AFL, you, w- with retirement, you just know when it's the right time. Did you just know f- as a jockey or was it a wrestle? I wrestled for a while because I really felt I was still very good at that level. Uh, and I still felt like I could contribute a lot more in this game um, at, as far as my riding was concerned. Um but I just felt I wasn't fully invested in it as like I was a, a year or two before. And um, if you want to be at that level, which I was so used to being at, you know, I've been riding for 37 years and I think I'd been at a very good level, probably 25 years. Of that. I'd been at a very, very high level. Um, and to be in that level all the time, which you expect yourself and, you, and people expect from you, you have to be completely fully invested. And I could, feel, I could feel a shift in my psyche that I wasn't. And you've always said you you yourself are chips in and I suppose you have to be chips in at the level that you're working at. So what, for the uninitiated, what does chips in involve in your old line of work? You know, keeping the weight under control and the like, I can't even imagine. Well, it means you have to be fully invested in what you're doing. Mentally, physically, you have to be so enthusiastic about your job. Uh, that's what chips in is. It's for me, it's, it's a, it's more than a hundred percent. I'm, you know, I'm a lunatic like that. I'm a, I've got a very addictive personality. So if I'm onto something, you can't stop me. I just, I get so, um, tunnel vision with what I want to do. And I've been that, like that with my writing career the whole way. I've, I, I never stopped trying to improve. I never stopped looking at other people trying to improve myself. Yeah. You know, I made sure I was always 
looking and listening to the right people, um, just trying to better myself as a jockey or a rider. And, um, you know, I was always trying to improve my craft. And as soon as I st- felt that I was, wasn't trying to do that anymore, I thought, well, that's, I made a promise to myself a decade ago or more that as soon as I got that to that position in my life, my riding career, that I would definitely step away. And I got to do it when I was at the top of my career. So I was blessed to have, be able to do that. Yeah, well, physically, you were absolutely at the top of your game. So I was going back through it right until the end. It's not like you were withering on the vine. So the last two years, you won a Cox Plate, Everest, Golden Eagle, Doncaster, Epsom, Sydney Cup, and the list goes on and on. We'll be here for another half an hour. But you said you were slipping mentally a little bit. How did that actually manifest itself in reality then? Well, what are we talking about? Well, what it, what that was was you know, just there was little things that I noticed, like just doing my form, you know, for that next day. I just felt I wasn't quite invested in that. I just, you know, I was thinking about other things, um, and I was thinking about retiring. You know what I mean? There was little that that was a thought. Oh, geez, you know, what am I going to do with my next phase of my life? And I'd never thought of that that before. Going to the races, I just felt. You know, I always, I was always so locked in uh, when I went to the races. Then I, I got there and I felt myself not thinking like I was before. So there was little signs. And then I was just talking to people and, you know, and then speaking with my wife and thinking, you know, what are we going to do? What's my next step? You know, and she's, mm. you know, so these little signs were popping up and these things manifest and then it just got bigger and bigger. And then I thought, you know what, I was getting to that point now which this is when I promised myself many years ago, if I get to this point, I will retire. And then I thought, well, you know what, let's do it. I can't imagine the adjustment that comes with it after, as you say, 37 years, 25 of those years at the at the top level, the years of sacrifice, the training, the, the brutally tough dieting. And I mean, that's what a lot of people from the outside of the industry can't get their head around, just the, what you can and can't eat. It must be, hey, just on face value, it must be nice eating whatever you like. Or did you do that anyway? Oh, what it was, was I've always been a very fit athlete. Like I've, throughout my whole career, I've never not been fit. Okay, it might go, you have ebbs and flows where you're fitter than other times, but mm. basically I had a very good level of fitness my whole life. Um, so that allowed me to eat well and all that sort of stuff. Physically, I'm, I'm pretty fit. I've had a few, you know, a few major falls, but basically I'm pretty fit now. Um, for me, the adjustment wasn't a big thing, to be honest. Um, it's just an ex... I'm actually, to be very honest, I'm actually more excited about what I'm about to do in the next couple of years than what I've actually done. Um, I've always been one of those guys. I, I, I'm, I, you know, I've always said I don't have a rear vision in my car. You know what I mean? Like I've always looked for it. And I, and I've, I know it's something to say it, but I'm actually I preach that. You know, because I've never been that person to look back. Um, and it's only till now that I've retired that I'm doing these kind of things that I'm reflecting on my career. Which and, I, and, and you sort of look back. Hey, I did some cool things. But <laughs> when you're when you're in it and you're doing it, you're in the zone. And you're, you're in the zone and you're always moving moving forward. You kind of that old cliche of smelling the roses. You kind of don't do that because you're always trying to improve yourself. You're always trying to go forward. And now I'm sitting back and I'm reflecting on my life and on my career and I feel great about it. Okay. So just on that, what are you doing in the here and now as we sit here? How do you feel your days? Come January, um, I've, I've got a big role with Ladbrokes and they're going to give me this massive platform to really do some pretty cool things in the next couple of years. So just having to meet these people in Ladbrokes, they're a young, energetic, yeah outside the box people and that's just me I, I just love this and they're going to give me a platform and, and they're going to throw a, throw a bit, a bit at me and I'm to give me a chance to do things I want to do you got a family of course you met your wife Sloan I think when you 17 yeah I was um, she was 16 and I was 18 I, I stole her out of the cradle you know <laughs> Yeah, and we've been together ever since, so I'm 52 now, and yes. I mean, you know what? It's another old cliche. You really need that person in your life. You know, that that, that one person that's always got your back. Um, she's very fierce. She, she's very protective, very fierce, and um, yeah, I love it a bit, you know. So, you know, she's we've got two amazing children. Um, Tate's 26 now, and Carter's 21, and yeah. Um, 
yeah, I've got a lot to thank. So your son, Tate, your daughter, Carter, you proud of who they've become? Oh my God, so proud. They're great human beings, um, both of them. They're very well-adjusted people. Um, my son's a, a coder, he do, you know, builds websites, um, but he's just a great human being, very docile and quiet, and, um, but driven at the same time. And Carter's the same, they're just... Uh, just just beautiful people. So when people stop to chat to you, now you've been doing this for a long, long time and you've got a very recognisable face. So when people do stop you in the street or at the supermarket or wherever it might be, what do they want to talk about? What What's the subject that people always come back to? Is it the diva or is it something else? Yeah, a lot of it is. Um, and, and a lot of it now is, it's amazing how many people have stopped me and said, well done, con- congratulations on your career. I'm actually being blown away from it. And not, not the older generation, it's so many young people. I never realised I had this effect on younger people, um, because the cool stuff I've done, like with Nikaibi, that's a, quite a while ago now. Well, it's amazing how quick it's gone. <laughs> it it, it is, like... but it's amazing how relevant it is yeah. right now. Um, you know, they can remember the times when she won, but if you ask them, can they name three Melbourne Cups winners since, they wouldn't be able to name three. But they know exactly where they were, how young they were, and then, you know, when she won. It's it's quite bizarre, but um, yeah, you do get stopped, and it's really pleasant, to be honest. Um, the people, they're always, well, they are, they're just pleasant, you know, mm. and so I like to stop and have a chat to him about things because um, I learned at a very young age, you know, I, I met one of my heroes and I won't name him one now, but um, I was so disappointed I met him because he gave me nothing, you know, and this is a guy that I absolutely idolised. Uh, and when I met him I, and I walked away and I thought, wow. What sport are we talking? Um, I won't, I won't okay. even go there because right. it, was just, it was just someone that I idolised and I promised myself that I could never do that to someone, you know what mm. I mean? Because I might, not that I'm, a, I'm the, high, the high profile like he was, but... People look up to you in certain respects, so you've got to actually give them, it's 30 seconds sometimes to shake their hand and have a, hi, what's your name? You know, and they, and they walk away with a good experience. So and they remember that. They a... remember that. And if they, and especially young people, you know, if a young aspiring jockey or, what, or a horse trainer or whatever he is, if, if you give him donut, they'll remember that for the rest of their life. Like I did when I got that experience to finally meet my idol. And um, so I, I would never like to be like You're listening to This Is Your Journey. It's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Up next, we're going to go back to a farm in the Queensland town of Bow Desert and the start of the Glenboss journey. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Journey, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We're chatting to revered former jockey, Glenn Boss. So, Glenn, you're born and raised on a farm in Bow Desert, so it's an about, what, about an hour inland from Gold Coast. As one of five kids, mum Lorraine, dad Tom, what was life like as a kid? Yeah, Sam, it was pretty, my life as a kid was so much fun. Um, yeah, like I said, I, I was actually, I was born in Bow Desert, but I was actually raised in Caboolture, which is, we moved not long after. I was, right. Yeah, when I was a very young man. Um, and we had a mixed farm, you know, cattle, uh, pigs, all the stuff, and, and horses, right? So it was a lot of hard work. Like, we worked very, very hard when we were young. But it was always fun, you know, getting up, you know, before the sun was up. Cows had to be done. All the animals had to be fed. We never, they fed, we got fed before us, before we went to school. So right. it was just... You know, I mean, that's the way my parents worked and that's the way we worked. So that was easy. First experience with a horse. Can you can you even remember it? Oh, yeah. I was hooked from the moment I met them. 
um, introduced into their lives um, because obviously being as, I was about four years old, a tiny kid and just seen this massive animal, yeah. how, how docile they were, you know, and I was intrigued from that moment and we started riding, I started riding horses, uh, you know, basically from a four-year-old kid and it was so much fun, you know, just yeah. going flat out on horses. It was just never scared, never, never had a moment, but um, yeah, terrific. I guess the, it is the innocence of that first experience as a kid, isn't it? Is it, is it the power, the first thing that strikes you about them sitting up there? Just, you mentioned how docile and calm they are, but just anyone who's sat on a horse for the first time, the power of the, of the animal is something that strikes you, I'd imagine. Absolutely. The actual strength and the speed that they have. But what what took me is I was more really in tune with men, with mentally. I, I sort of got them straight away. Um, they're basically just like big dogs and they've got that sixth sense. So it's the way you approach them. You you know, you have to have to be asked to be into their, into their, into their, into their spot, into their little world. If you're trying to push yourself onto them, it's no good. You have to sit there and ask for permission to be in their space. And once you get that permission from them, you just have this bond and they just can't be broken unless you do something stupid to break it. But I, I really enjoy that with those animals. It's incredible just to get into their minds. Pony Club was a huge part of your life. Now, is this where the enjoyment and all the fun of it was franked by the competitiveness? Absolutely. Just all I ever wanted to do was go fast on them. You know, like yeah, right. I just, you know, height, the, the jumping and dressage. The dressage. I, I wasn't really drawn to that dressage. It was, I could do it, but it wasn't my thing. Uh, eventing, um, jumping, just going flat out on them. That was the speed was the one that really got me, you know, and <laughs> yeah, just the movement of the animal is, it's, it's an intri- they're an intriguing animal. Um, you know, their legs are only not much bigger than your forearms, but they can, the speed they go with the weight that's on top of them, yeah. um, they're an incredibly animal. And you broke horses too as a kid, didn't you? Yeah. We used to, I used to get, I used to get, um, old thoroughbred and break them into like, they were not, and, and, and teach them another genre of like a, a jumping and all that stuff. I used to just love it. So your first race as a spectator and your memories of it, was it, was it Gimpy? It was Gimpy. Um, a crazy day. Um, I was on holidays, summer holidays from school, right. grade 10. And I went to, my grandmother went to the races. She's loved to go to the races at Gimpy. And then she asked me if I wanted to come along one day. And I said, yeah, for sure. I didn't know what the races were or whatnot. And anyway, when we drove into the Gimpy race course, we parked down near the old stockyards, which was at the top of the straight. And fate would have it as I got out of the car, I could see the horses coming near the 600 meter mark. So I ran over to the outside of the fence, which was literally five meters away from, you know, as the horses were coming and they come around the corner and I could feel the ground move. I could see the, you know, and the noise and the color. I just couldn't believe what went past me. It was, I was just, just freaked out to be honest. It was pretty obvious going through school. I was never going to be a, um, a brain scientist or a cure cancer or anything, to, yeah. you know. So I went back to school on Monday because that was the end of our holidays. I quit school that day, told the teachers I was quitting and I come home and told mum that I'd quit school and I wanted to be an apprentice jockey. I had no idea what, the, what this was. This is year 10. This is halfway through year 10 at, at Caboolture High School. How did mum take that? She just was literally dumbfounded because I, was a, I, was a, I wasn't smart, but I was a good student, you know. I was back at Gympie the week later um, with my grandmother again being introduced to a trainer who was going to take me on as an apprentice jockey. That's how quick the turnaround was. Unbelievable. Yeah, I'm a bit like that. Um, like you had that, that clarity that yeah, quickly? Yeah, that, that quickly. I, I had no idea what apprentice jockey was. I had no idea how this was going to happen. But Didn't want to make a few, ask a few questions no, first. Just, just ring my grandmother and say, how do we get this done? She said, oh, okay. And she sorted it. And then I was being introduced to a chap named Terry Chinner, who was arguably one of the best horse people I've ever seen in my life. So yeah, it was just fate. Got us together. So Terry Chinner took you on at Gympie and then later, obviously, Kay Tinsley on the Gold Coast after that. Now, we often hear sports people talk around the many people who help them on their way. No one does it on their own. Now, these are two massive pillars for you in your journey, aren't they? Absolutely. Terry was the great horseman. 
who taught me the craft. He just, I loved horses and I knew them, but he taught me the craft, you know, about being a horseman. And that's what I've become, you know, better horseman than I was. Now, when I got with Kay Tinsley on the Gold Coast, I was a bit of a rat bag kid, you know, like, like never been in the cities and that. But once I got to the city, I, you know, I become a bit of a, well, I could have went either way. You know what I mean? few temptations. Well, yeah, I could have went either way, but through Kay, he taught me the right from the wrong very quickly. And he was, Kay was only, like he was, wasn't even five foot, but his stature was much bigger than himself, you know, and he really instilled into me the right things. And so I went the right way. You know what I mean? I could have easily went the other way, but he just kicked my ass so many times and, and, and that brought me into line. And, um, I still carry the things that those two guys taught me as a 16, 17 year old kid. I still hold them dearly to, to what I do today. These people are just so important, aren't they? And, and there's many of them along the journey, mm. but you think of sliding doors moments where, where you ended up now and where you could have been, if not for people who come into your life. It's quite amazing when you think. And it's very relevant today. You know, people think that young people, you know, we, sometimes you think they're not listening or whatever, not taking on what you say, but my God, they take on a lot more than what you what you say. And, and, and yeah, you need to teach people the right things at the right time and, you know, give them the tools. If, you know, that's all you can do, right? Give them the tools. Um, it's, it's up to them to whatever they do with the tools from that point. And in terms of being an apprentice jockey, I mean, it's one thing to go along at Gympie and watch it, but actually doing it and living it. Any fear or trepidation at this stage? Oh, no way. It was so much fun. My first year at Gympie, I only rode, I only rode there for seven months, I believe, or seven or eight months. I won the senior's title and the, and, the, and the apprentice title in that first year of my riding. So I was going okay. And, and when I got, got down to um, the Gold Coast, it was a different. I won the apprentice's title in, on the Gold Coast. And then I went on to, to the start. Riding in Brisbane, and um, I kept running second to Chrissy Munts, who was one of yeah. my best mates, or he is my best mate, one of my best mates. And um, but so that was the progression from where I was. But I always felt like I was going to go. Yeah, my ambition was always to be something better. You're with this is your journey. It's brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. You can catch them online at tobinbrothers.com.au. Well, that's something further is after the break. Glenn Boss's roller coaster ride at the top of the racing world. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. We're with three-time Melbourne Cup winner, Glenn Boss. So, Glenn, December 14, 1985. I just want to quickly discuss your first winner, Pasatika, Gimpy. You're learning quickly by this point, and as we touched on, 80 races I think you've won in your first 10 months as an apprentice. But does the first one always hold something special? Oh, there's absolutely no doubt. And it was over in a heartbeat. I know it was only a short race, but it, the, the speed of it was just the one that thing that grabbed me, how quick it was. And I remember Terry saying, it'll get slower and slower and slower and slower. The more <laughs> you do it, and I didn't, you know, kind of get what he said, but yeah. now I, I, after a little while I did get what he, because it, it, it did, you got more comfortable, you started to relax a bit more with your environment and what you're doing and, and things just got slower. You mentioned the move to the Gold Coast and, and I guess the you know, the temptations off the track. But on the track, were you reckless as well at this point? I mean, such was the perhaps the ferocity of your will to win. You did spend a fair bit of time in the stewards' rooms around these these uh, stages as a young man, didn't you? And the suspensions were piling up for a time there as well. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I was just so hell-bent on winning and I was very fierce. Um, I just never took a step back. It didn't matter who was in the room or, you know, like you'd riding against all the, you know, Mick Dittman and all those blokes. Oh, I never had any fear. You know, just I was always so driven and, yeah, so the, 
I was, it took me a long time um, to curb my enthusiasm because, uh, yeah, I used to just go out there and just, not, not like a train wreck. I wasn't malicious. No, never, never. I was just so intent on winning. Not a bad trait to have though, I wouldn't have thought, if it can be harnessed, pardon the pun. Well, that's right. It, it took me a while to harness it, um, but initially I was just, you know, like tunnel, like the blinkers on. Um, all, I, all I wanted to do was win. Well, you're a young man and, and young men, young women, there's success, learning on the go. There's a lot we don't know at this stages of our lives. Now, you and Sloan, your apprenticeship concludes, you gain access obviously to enough money to, to, to set yourself up, you know, a nice home, uh, buy a car, etc. There's a small problem. And that is that the Australian uh, tax office was about to bring that to your attention. You hadn't actually paid any tax. No, this was um, like, I had no idea. I had no idea. My tax had never been paid throughout my apprenticeship. Uh, and when I got out, like I said, yeah, beautiful. We had a little bit of money there. And, and I don't even know how this happened to this day, how it was never done. Yeah. You didn't um, have a tax file number. Nothing. Though, had nothing. It's incredible, right? But you don't know. I mean, it's I, not no. necessarily even your fault. No, it's I, had just... no, I had zero idea. So we got out and then I got introduced to a, an accountant and I'm thinking, well, what do I need this bloke for? Basically, when I was 20, right? And then he went back and he went through it all and he went, well, we got a big problem here. So not only did they take my money, they fined me. You know what I mean? This is incredible. So I was starting from less than, I had, I had zero, then I had to pay money. <laughs> Jeez. So it was crazy. So um, sliding doors moments. Yeah. So you end up with basically nothing. I mean, I'm assuming you're backed into a corner at this stage. So the pressure must have been immense off the track, but on, I mean, particularly to get results. What did you learn about yourself in this moment? Well, it was frightening because uh, we had nothing and I had, I actually owed money. So this is an amazing day, right? So I said to Sloan, this we were you know, backed into a corner pretty big time. Anyway, I, I we had no money. So I, all I could do was I had races that day at Ipswich, and I remember Slane and Slane, well, you know, this is the, obviously the day where either we go forward or we don't, you know, this is this is the day. So I went to the races that day. I had four rides, three of them won. And that day, you used to get paid on the day, you know, you'd go and collect your money in the, in the office at the wow. end of the day. So it was probably two or three grand or something for the day, you know. Anyway, so that was the start of, you know, I went home, we had enough money then just like I could start putting our structured forward, um, paying off what I had to pay and we could start living again. So yeah, from that moment on, I, it was, we went forward, you know what I mean? It could have been either way, you know, but, um, Amazing. it's amazing. I did learn a lot about myself in reflection on that day. I, I learned that when I'm under pressure, that's when I'm good. That's, you know, the, the bigger the moment, the harder that I, the more it matters. That's when I be, the clarity become clearer for me. Mentally, I was better. Then this is just something that I kind of learned along the journey that, and then you look back and reflect on those moments in your life. I, and I've had many of them. Every time I've been asked that question, I've been able to answer it. It's just incredible. Performing under pressure would be a trait that would serve you well many, many years on. 1994, Chipping Norton Stakes. That was the scene of your first Group 1 winner, Telesto. What a thrill. And I'm assuming in the aftermath would have turned some heads as well. Did you, were you looked at a little bit differently, perhaps more favourably after winning a Group 1 oh, initially? Abs- absolutely. Uh, once you become a, a Group 1 rider, everyone looks at you different. I hadn't long been in Sydney and it's an incredible thing. You know, you get down to Sydney, I hadn't been there a year and TJ Smith's looking after me. All these people, that Bart Cummings, Gay Wardhouse, all these people that you look idolised and Mr Begg and they, they put me on my first Group 1 winner and all of a sudden you're a Group 1 rider um, and you kind of had a sense of belonging. Because, you know, I'm in Sydney and I'm riding against the best of the best. Jimmy yeah. Cassidy, Shane Dye, all those guys. Yeah. Mick Dittman. And all of a sudden you have a self-belief, number one, that you actually belong here. And that's that's so much, that is so much for your psyche that you actually felt like you belong. So much success in your career, obviously. But naturally there's disappointment along the way, especially over the course of such a, a long career. Now, I had to re-watch 
the 98 Melbourne Cup before speaking to you because I, I know how long this pained you for. You have Champagne, what, half a head in front, 200 to go, would you say? Yeah, she she claimed the – I got to the front about 180 metres from home or 200 metres from home, and she was surging to win. You'd gone past Jezebel I'd gone just – Jezebel, I put a long neck on her, and I was surging to put further ground on her, and Chrissy Munson and Jezebel kept coming, you know. And then I felt with about 100 metres to go, uh, Champagne start – her stride started to shorten, and it wasn't true she was getting tired. Something wasn't right. She, I could feel her just falter a little bit underneath me, and then we got within – I'm still in front – and then I got within 50 metres and I could feel her start to really shorten up. And you know, obviously, Josie Bill just kept maintaining that one gallop and she beat me on the line. It was gut-wrenching. Yeah, it was the most... I'd never felt like this before in my life. I went back in the rooms after... You know, because I could see the Melbourne Cup in my hands at one moment. I was picturing me winning the Melbourne Cup before yeah. I got to Lowe, which is stupid, right? When I got beaten, I went back in the sheds that day and I was physically ill. I vomited everywhere. It just churned me up that much, you know? Um, so this is what... It means to us, you know, the Melbourne Cup tears you apart when you get beat like that. Yeah, so lucky. Uh, I, I, was, <laughs> I was lucky enough, though, to fl- find the flip side of that coin. So it stayed with you for a long time in yeah, the aftermath. That, I was riding in Hong Kong at the time, and it, honestly, it took me so long to get over that. And you know what? It took me – I was sitting in the um, training shed one day, and, and this is like three weeks later, and I was still churning. David Hayes, to his credit, he actually got me over the line. He said, mate – he put hand and he said, "Mate, would you have done? Could you have done anything different?" And I went, "Well, no, I don't think so. It was, you know, I could feel to go underneath me." He said, "Well, if you can't do anything different, what could you? You can't change it. Number one, anyway. But you give that horse. I watched that replay. You give that horse every hope. You were the winner, and something went wrong. So that's out of your control. Forget about it. That get helped. on, get on with. It. Yeah, yeah, mate. It was like lifting a, a sheet off me. Yeah. He said, "Get on with life. Can't do any more. You, you had every, you had all the luck in the world. You rode it good. Can't do it anymore. Get over it. Virtually." Hard, bit no, of tough love. Tough love. And honestly, I walked out of that conversation like a brand new person. And that thing that went wrong, Champagne wasn't okay. She never raced again. Mm. She broke down that day. The low, I don't, I'm not sure if this was the lowest point or that was the lowest point, but the fall at Macau 2002, um, physically, this is easily the lowest point because you've effectively broken your neck. You've, you've fractured your C2 right at the spot at the top of the cervical spine. I think from memory, I've heard you say the crash itself, you know, wasn't that bad. But clearly the injuries were. But you had, again, speaking of clarity in difficult mm. moments, you had it. Yeah, amazing. I, yeah, I had a fall in the cow and like I said, the fall was very simple. But the, how I landed on my shoulder and my neck, my neck head went one way and I, I broke my neck. But I knew I broke my neck straight away because I could, I actually physically, I heard the crack in my neck, but the heat and the pain was immediate and I knew where it was, but I didn't know the, you know, I didn't really know the extent of it, but I just knew I broke my neck. Yeah. And uh, I never and and being conscious saved my life because I if they if I was unconscious they would have dragged me and I would have mer- my it would have turned what was a stable fracture into an unstable fracture and I would have severed my spinal cord and basically I would have tra- would have tapped out there because it would, you know it controls your breathing controls everything you see too if you sever it there, sever it there you, um, you haven't got much time to live so just having clarity enough that. Don't, no one touched me. No one touched me until the medical staff there and they put a brace on me and, and put me in, a, in the in an ambulance. Probably saved my life. So three to four months with a brace, screws in the skull. Yeah. And they did tell you, a few of them anyway, that you wouldn't ride again. Well, I broke my C2 in three spots. I broke it through the body. One of the wings was dislocated and, and one of the wings was fractured. So it was a, it was a, it was a precarious break. Having a very good neurosurgeon in Hong Kong, um, put me then in that brace, which was a wicked, wicked thing. Um, but he operated on me and got me in the right spot. And lucky enough, I was able to get back in on the paddock. We're talking to Glenn Boss on This Is Your Journey. It's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Bossy's life, well, it's good, but it's about to hit the stratosphere on the mighty Maccabi Diva. That's next. 
You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Glenn Boss has been our guest today. Glenn, Maccabi Diva, no doubt, was a mare who transcended racing. You didn't have to be a racing fan to appreciate the feats of Maccabi Diva, well and truly. She was in rare air, the only horse to win three Melbourne Cups. So, 03, 04, 05, to go with the Cox Plate of 05. Do you mind if we go through them one by one? Oh, absolutely not. I just... Uh... Yeah, the greatest moment of my life, you know, professionally. So it's 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 always nice to talk about it, to be honest. 2003. McCabe Diva in front. She's Archie, tries hard, but McCabe Diva wins the cup. Come off a huge run in the Caulfield Cup. Now, was it last or fourth? Yeah, she, she drew the outside barrier in the Caulfield Cup. And all she had to do was run well in the Caulfield Cup. We actually thought she could win, but she drew the outside barrier. Mm. So it was, it was okay. Let's go right her back and let's... Let her run well so we know we can win a Melbourne Cup. We were actually very confident that she she was probably the right horse. Um, she had 51 kilos in her first, uh, uh, you know, first Melbourne Cup. So all she had to do was run really well in the Caulfield Cup, and that's what she did. She came from last and ripped through the line to run fourth, and it was like, well, he, we're on the right path now. So in the race itself, she was well back. I think you won off the fence. Yep. What happened next? Well, I had so much trust in this mare in – after I rode in the Caulfield Cup, I knew what I had. Um, she was a different animal than I'd ever ridden before. And I'd ridden some really good horses throughout my career, but this was the first one I got on. I thought this is, a, this could be the one, you know, um, she had the ability to get herself in a spot, completely relax. But when you, when you let the wick, it was instant power. Like it, she had, she had the speed of a, Group one sprinter, but over two miles. <laughs> Incredible, right? This is, you know, and she had the lungs. She had, she had everything. So when we got to that first Melbourne Cup, basically all I had to do was get her in the right spot, just chill out and relax. Got to the 600 and I remember David Hall and Tony Sanding said, all I have to do to get to that point is count to 10. Just, just chill out and relax. Don't go too soon because once, well, like I said, once you start her up, it's instant speed, woof. So I just did. I just cut my way through the field, and and we got a, we both got a lovely run. And like I said, when I let her go, no horse would come from behind us. So it, we were ecstatic that we got the first one out of the way. Because like I said to you earlier, it means so much. When I got beaten on the champagne, it hurt me so much. But to win it, the flip side of that coin, the, the emotions that go through your body is just, it's like an atomic bomb goes off in your body. Amazing. And do you think? You know, to go through your career and not win one, it would have always been a what if, a regret. Uh, it must have been a, a, a large part of relief, I imagine, to win it. Oh, it's no doubt. It's like any any sport. And if you get to a very high level in your chosen sport um, and you have the opportunity to maybe win a grand final or where it is and you don't get one, yeah, of course, because it, that's what you got into the sport to do. You wanted to win a gold medal. You wanted to win a, uh, you know you know, a, a grand final or whatever it is. So that's our grand final. It's our holy grail. That's the one we have to win. Um, so 
yeah, it would you would be empty if you got to that level and you won a fifty or sixty Group One winners, but you didn't win a Melbourne Cup. Mm. It would be one that haunts you. So that first win, Cup win, she was trained by David Hall, of course. Then he subsequently left for Hong Kong, and Lee Friedman took her on, and the diva thrived there. It was, it's down at St Andrews, isn't it, in the peninsula? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. At Mark Dell on the property, and and, and this is the another sliding doors moment. You know, like for a, 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 what Lee did with her, how he moulded her and transformed her into what she became had to be truly seen to be believed because he's an artist. He's, he's like a Picasso. I promise you he's, he's a wonderful trainer. Um, just to be part of that and witness what he did with her in the time that he had her, a true artist. Not, not to discredit David Hall by any stretch of the imagination, but do you think Maccabi Diva's success was, was pre-written? Would she have gone on to win three in a row if David Hall had hung around and no, leave for a minute? No way. She became what she became because of Lee Friedman and his property. The way yeah, she thrived in that environment. Mm. Um, I'm not knocking David Hall like at all, but it's the marriage that they, she had with Mark Dell property and the going to the beach. It it was just her. Um, so she wouldn't have been her without that, no doubt. 2004 at Soft, uh, she carried four and a half kilos more, cluttered up near the fence, turning for home. So, so Vinnie Rose, the big threat yeah. here, and and the the one to beat, one of the best, probably. Well, you tell me, the best wet tracker in the world. But the diva was up to it. She sprinted on soft ground like she was running on firm ground. It's McCabe Diva clear, and she's going to do what no mare has ever done. McCabe Diva wins it again. Yeah, it was a crazy day that day. It was it was a typical Melbourne day. It was twenty five degrees, beautiful. <laughs> Everyone's at the at the races. All the girls are looking magnificent and makeup on, and we could see this uh, front coming from Geelong. It was big, and uh, they said it was going to come probably about thirty minutes before the race, and we were watching this Armageddon looking thing coming towards Flemington, and when it hit the you know the front come through and the wind mm. first, and the temperature dropped you know as it can here and. The rain come down solid. So all of a sudden, Vinnie Rowe, who, who was arguably, or he was, two years in a row, the best two-mile in the world. He was the best. And he was amazing in working around. But guess what? So were we. Um, but we still had a big task ahead of us to beat him because, you know, he was right on tune. And uh, you couldn't have scripted this race any better, I promise you. It was, it was like a movie scene for us because... I jumped out, I got in my great spot again, and she just chilled out throughout the whole race. And I remember getting to the 1,000-minute mark, and I was on the fence, just cruising along, and then there was a horse in between us, and there was Vinnie Rowe, three wide, and I'm looking across and going, there he is, right beside us virtually. And he started to make his move, and I thought, well, he's going to have to go six, seven, eight wide at some point of this race, and he's going to have to go around at least 10 or 12 horses minimum. So I'm thinking, geez, okay. If I just stick to the fence here and cut my way through the field, like I know I can, because I've got the right horse to do it, because she's a different animal to him. He needed to get stoked up and wound up into his gallop, and she could sit there and just go bang. So I thought, well, I just do it right. At, I'm he can't, he can't beat me if I do this, you know. So I did that, and I got the split. I went in one horse throughout the whole race. I got the split at the three hundred meter mark, and you wouldn't believe, here he comes. He just joined me, <laughs> Vinny. You know, so it was. Two of the greatest horses in the world at that distance to go toe to toe down that amazing Flemington straight. You just couldn't script this. And I looked over my shoulder and here he was, he's coming at me. But she put on this amazing bit of a sprint. She put about a length and a half on him, length and three quarters, and she maintained that gallop right to the line. And she beat the best horse in the world. Just, just showed how good she was. 
And yet it gets better. I mean, 2005, three in a row. I'm telling you, there's not many dry eyes in the stands at Flemington. I mean, grown men are crying. Women are crying. They're hugging each other. The side of it as you flash past the post. Now, she's 58 kilos, more than any other winning mayor of history, of course. Huge audience, huge anticipation, an enormous moment in cup history. But the pressure, can you can you take us back? Uh, how intense was the flame going for three in a row, the expectation? Well, she had an incredible year. You know, after that, she came out and she won the Australian Cup, broke two minutes. She still holds a record there, beat Norley's record. She won a she won a BMW, beat Grand Army, who was arguably the best horse in Australia at that time, besides her, smashed him. Um, so she, she and she won't come out and won a Cox Plate just before she was going ready for that third Melbourne Cup. So she she is an athlete who is at the peak of her powers at the moment. So. We galloped to her on the Saturday morning, which is Derby morning, which was going to be her, obviously her final gallop before the cup. And she put in a piece of work, which I've never experienced. And I've ridden some amazing horses. I've never experienced a horse do what she did that morning. And the, but the way she did it, 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 she did this piece of work and she just pulled over it after it and took this massive, big, deep breath, cleared her lungs and just said, can we do that again? Basically. And I said, uh, I said to Lee and Tony, they went out there to watch that gallop. I said, it's all over. It can't get beat. It will not get beat. So honestly, I was in such a space for that Saturday till the Tuesday, <laughs> in such a psyched up space that literally I almost willed it to happen. It couldn't, she couldn't get beat. I actually even told Tony on the, we had a, a powwow on the Saturday night after Derby night. And uh, I put my hand on the shoulder and said, mate, this is a runaway train. You cannot stop this. I can't stop it. You can't stop it. It won't get beat. And he was like, F you, you can't say that. You can't do the early crow like that. I said, I'm telling you, mate, you can't stop it. And that's how it turned out. Just like sitting on a rocket, all he had to do was not well, stuff it up. My job, all, all my job was that day was to not disappoint the animal. That's my whole job. That's all I had to do, not disappoint her. She could, she was going to go out there and absolutely showcase what she could do. It was only my job was to not disappoint her. And I knew I could do that. That I was, you know, I always trusted myself that much. I knew that I, I couldn't, I couldn't disappoint her because I just go. I was always going to give her a good ride. So you called it on the Saturday night, but I think I've heard you say before you knew it was definitely over at the half mile. Then she was just ready to ready to launch. Uh, when she when she came out of the race from the saddling paddock into the into the into the mounting enclosure, I knew it was over. Then she walked into the mounting enclosure like, oh my god! You just she was big, bold, the colour. You could just see the way she looked. By the time I got to the barriers, it was just, you know, all I, like I said, yeah, all I had to do, all, all, my only thought was get clean air when I want to, just don't disappoint her. And throughout the run, yeah. As, as an athlete, when you're at a high level, you very rarely get into these places. Um, and when you do get, and I've experienced this a fair few times, you just get into this, you get into this spot where you are completely switched off. Um, you see people, but you don't see their faces. You hear things, but you don't hear noises. You get into this bubble environment where you simply stop thinking and all you do is react. And you can only get there through hard work and all the rest of the things, you, all the good things that you've done that people don't see, but you, you can only get there if you can trust yourself to do it. And that's what, what happened to that day. I was just in this bubble and all I was just doing was reacting. I was seeing things a furlong in front of me, 200 metres in front of me, and all I was doing was reacting. I've got to be there, I've got to be there. And it was just all happening in front of me. And we popped out the 300 metre mark and I just unleashed the shackles and 
and it was all over. It was it was too easy. It, it was too easy. The moment itself, when three the three in a row dream becomes a, a reality, the euphoria. Can you take yourself back there even now? Can oh. you remember it all? Oh my god, yes! It's it's incredible because you know with the build up and. You know, I'm a history buff, and I knew that we were, this is this is history. Like, I actually felt like Amber and Hillary when he stood on Everest, right? It, it must have been such a moment. Like, I know it's not that, but I felt like that for the first person that we, us, me and Diva, the, the first person to do this, and this might never be done again. Yeah, I I, I felt a sense of that. You know, um, yeah, that experience is something that. I've never felt before, never felt again, um, but I'm glad I got to feel it, you know, because it's just, it's just, people have tried me, asked me to quantify it. And, and for me, it was like complete overload physically and mentally because I went past the post and it was like a slideshow, but I was seeing a thousand slides a second. You know, you remember yourself as a kid, the journey, you remember her, Tony, Lee, your family, the kids. I was just going through my mind, but it was, I could see every frame, but it was so fast. It was, it, it's hard to, hard to describe. That's amazing. It's honestly, it's hard to describe because that's what it felt like. All these memories flooding back to me so fast. And then that's why I tried to stay on her back for as long as I could. And I took her back to the crowd and showed her, you know, showcased her because I knew this was going to be the last time that I'll be on her back. Um, it, honestly, it, an incredible, incredible experience mentally and physically. It is the greatest Melbourne Cup win of all time. And it's such a massive moment as a as a caller, you you, you stress out about doing it justice. But Greg Miles did exactly that, and the famous champion becomes a legend. Uh, will live on forever. Now you could actually hear that. You could hear Greg as you cross the line. Is that right? Well, I could hear parts of it because. When a horse gallops, when their first, when their foot hits the their front foot hits the ground, the first foot when they hit the ground, it's called breaking stride, and they actually slow down by, you know, they're doing about sixty-five k an hour, sixty-eight. They actually slow down by a couple of kilometres, so there's this moment which is a millisecond where it, it goes quiet. It's so I could, it was like this is what I felt down the straight. Okay, the crowd's going berserk, right? I could hear ha, 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 and in that ha. I could actually hear parts of his call. And this is only like a millisecond, right? Because it's, you know, yeah. stride is so quick. I'm actually freaking out at this moment because I've never experienced this. I could hear that, like, all the way down the straight. And I could actually hear the call. And I'm going, fuck, what the hell is this? You know, like, so, because I had that whole 300 metres where I'm not going to get beat. I'm on my own. I had that, it, I, you know what I mean? I, I could slow down. I could hear things. and Savour it. Save that moment, 300 metres. You can't ever think that was ever possible. Um, you're so driven to get to line first, you know. And But I had this, I had this moment, which was 300 metres, which is like 30 seconds, right, where I could actually ha- ha- savour that moment. Just in awe of the horse, I imagine, and not yeah. just in the moment, but in the years since. Yeah. I mean, you must be totally in awe of the horse. Um, and this is just not the Australian public, but the general public. It was just such a powerful moment. Yeah, in awe of the animal and the athlete that she was, um, complete love, you know, just so much affection for what she done, not just for me and Lee and Tony and David Hall, and but the way, what she did for the public, 
um, she changed a lot of people's lives, you know, like just to be there and watch her, you know. Um, but she changed my life. It, there's no doubt. She just changed my life. Um, yeah, so I have so much admiration for the animal generally, but when you get to a point where you have the the moments to spend with what I consider greatness, you know, she was a champion and, and she, and I think she deserves that title. And, and I was in the presence of greatness and, uh, got to be along for the journey. It's an incredible experience. Do you have the physical reminders somewhere in the home or do you, how do you, how does it live on with you? Yeah. Well, I, I kind of realized from the first moment I got on her that this is going to be something, an experience. I didn't know we were going to win three cups and all the rest of it, but I knew this was going to be a journey. So I kept everything I rode, all the gear I rode with her. I, every time I rode with her, I, the saddle I used, I put away gloves, girths. Um, I've got all the colors that I used. Um, yeah, there's a lot of good, and all the saddlecloths. I've got a lot of, got a lot of good stuff. That's going to be for my children's children, children, uh, because I realize that this is going to be a moment that is going to live on for a long time. So I, I, I cherished all those things. So you should too, absolutely. Glenn, thanks a lot for donating your time today, mate. You are one of this country's most accomplished and successful jockeys and you have a celebrated piece in Australian turf history. Setbacks you had, of course, but your desire and positivity always saw you overcome them and three straight cups will forever be the stuff of legend. Well done on all you achieved. Best of luck for this new life that you've started now and thanks a lot for joining us. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's it's uh, been great to be here and SEN and just... Uh, yeah, go relive, relive this because um, it's something I love to talk about. And um, yeah, I just, I'm really looking forward to the next phase, but thanks for letting me have the time. The great Glenn Boss uh, in the flesh. Thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Jump online to find tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.